the Graduate Institute at St. John's College explores the great books of the West, or the East. Now online or in person at our Annapolis, Maryland, or Santa Fe, New Mexico campuses. Learn more at sjc.edu. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. The 20th anniversary of the Iraq War quietly slipped by a month ago. Or, at least, it was quiet for most Americans who have no connection to the violence and pain that's been wrought across the Middle East, or on the soldiers who went there under false pretenses. I vividly remember the morning of March 19, 2003. I had graduated from high school a semester early, and I was working as a temp in the radiology records department at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. While the hospital played the same tape of inoffensive music throughout the halls every day, there was one room where two very wonderful middle-aged women worked, where our radio was always tuned to one of the local country music stations. I happened to be in that room as the DJ read out the announcement. The invasion of Iraq had begun. He then put on the Ballad of the Green Berets. For those who haven't heard the song, it begins. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The brave men. Of the Green it was chilling and enraging. I'll never forget that moment. And a little over a thousand miles away from me, there was Lewis Lapham at his desk in the Harper's offices. He's probably smoking a cigarette. Harper's was one of the very first publications to come out against the war in Iraq. And it remained consistently critical of everything the Bush administration did. The magazine also depicted people beyond the green zone. Of Iraqi, Pashtun, Kurdish, Mandean, Christian, and Muslim lives that were torn apart by freedom and nation-building. So in honor of this painful, absurd, tragic anniversary, I spoke with Lapham about three of the many pieces he wrote during the Bush era. I've linked them in the show notes. Each is unfailingly clear-eyed and prescient. Knowing what we know now, so, you know, every tell-all, every expose, between every line of every memoir and hagiography, over, you know, released since the start of the Iraq War. Yes. Has your understanding of why we invaded Iraq changed? And if it has, what was the change? I don't think it's changed. I mean, I think the invasion of Iraq was a stupidity based on a delusion. The Americans pleased with the thought that they were the rulers of the world. In the words of Charles Krauthammer, one of the leading voices of 
Christian crusade was that no power since imperial Rome had commanded the world to the extent of the American power in the year 2001. And he actually wrote a column for Time magazine in the summer of 2001, a few months before the fall of the trade towers, in, in which he said that um, we make our own reality. What we say is, is real is real. We will set all the rules. We will run the hotels and the ministries of information and decide who is American and who is not. Extraordinary. I mean, I mean and, and this kind of tone appeared throughout the established American news media and what the real reasons were for invading Iraq in 2003, I still don't know. <laughs> but nor am I assured that the Bush administration knew then or now. What makes you say that, that they don't, even they don't know? Well, because but. they don't... Uh, they declare a war against all the world's evil. And you can't win that kind of a war, a war because that's a um, war against an unknown enemy and an abstract noun. I mean, maybe their objective was to control the oil production. Maybe it was to run the equivalent of a Pentagon trade show with live ammunition. <laughs> Maybe it was to satisfy some uh, egotistical sense of the American self on the part of Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. But one of the distinctive characteristics of the American establishment or what we now call the deep state, the plutocracy that's been in office in Washington since the arrival of Reagan. And one of their distinctive characteristics is to speak in a language that means nothing. <laughs> they, they, to say nothing. That is the great art of self-advancement in Washington. I tend to see see the characteristic in both the Republican and the, and the Democrat. I, I find the narcissism of Obama as revolting as the narcissism of Trump. Mm -hmm. And what the real motive is, I mean, there's never a specific objective. It's also paranoid, and the American nomenclatura always casts itself as the victim. Yes. Americans, it, it is believed, are by definition innocent. Yes. And constantly under attack by foreign agents, various ideologies, disease, acid rain, <laughs> trouble coming at them from all directions at all times. And because they are convinced that we are forever innocent, that allows them to respond with brutal means. I mean, if you are by a definition innocent and just, that gives you permission to kill without mercy and uh, 
do what is ever necessary. Madeleine Albright, who was, I believe, Clinton's Secretary of State, and she was on television. It was pointed out by the correspondent that 500,000 Iraqi children had died of malnutrition or starvation because the Americans had imposed embargo on the delivery of medicine, baby formula, milk to Iraq. And Albright simply said it was worth it. I remember this very vividly. Yeah, the the um, Americans are always doing good in the world. They apologize for nothing. George Bush said that. The older George Bush said that when the Navy, prior to the first Gulf War, shot down a civilian airliner over the Persian Gulf, killed two hundred odd Iranians and. Uh, Bush said, we never apologize. Mm -hmm. And nothing we ever do is wrong. Americans lack a a, a tragic sense of life. The the, uh, doctrine of American exceptionalism, which has been with us since the 1820s, a parting gift of Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) have uh, excused us uh, from committing any crime. Let's stay with innocence for a second, because something that irritates me as someone who lived through this time, you know, through the war on terror, through war on Iraq, is this revisionism. And part of the revisionism is that something changed after 9-11. What changed? No one can say, but something changed. And... You know, in uh, August 2001, Harper's published your essay called The American Rome on the Theory of Virtuous Empire, which gets into this question of innocence. And it doesn't have anything to do with the vestiges of the Cold War infrastructure. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the victory of World War II. And it's not something specifically vicious about George W. Bush. It's it's this... It's this part of the American character itself. And I think, I think that's very true. And you can see that with Trump supporters, this feeling of being aggrieved, um, of being an innocent, of needing retribution. What allows you to sort of pick that out of all these other historical facts and, and say that this is, the, this, is, this is what undergirds it all? Well, I don't know if that's right or wrong. It's it's just the way it's, it's just the way I see it, and it's it's what I hear in the verse. I mean, look at Trump. Trump is constantly portraying himself as a victim. Yes. And uh, George W. Bush was doing this. You know, did the same thing. I mean, it, it's the American. Uh, it's the lie that it tells itself that allows it, America, the administration, the government. Defense Department, whatever you want to call it, to do as they please. I find that again in the voice of Obama, the voice of Biden. You know, Biden's the the their reasons for spying on their own citizens, their willingness to set aside the Constitution, not listening to other people. I mean, and it's uh, one of the reasons that Trump got elected was saying that. 
when he was campaigning in 2016, uh, saying to crowds all across the country that uh, I'm rich, I can do anything I wish because I'm rich, and so can America. His audience, whose experience of the 1980s had been one of downwardly mobile passage, <laughs> the uh, 80s are distinguished by, and this starts with Reagan, with, with more laws protecting the rights of property and fewer laws protecting the rights of, of people. It's the free market ignores any value that can't be translated into cash, that doesn't recognize human value, endeavor, worth. And that enra enrages people to be treated like that, to be treated as objects instead of subjects. And that, that of course, is what the, the Biden administration, I mean, this is neither left nor right. I mean, this is both, yeah. this is plutocracy. America was not founded as a democracy. America was founded on the dream of riches, just, just the way Zuckerberg's Facebook or Rockefeller's Standard Oil. I mean, the uh, pilgrims that arrive in Salem in 1620 are there in search of riches, spiritual, temporal, animal, vegetable, mineral. Not human. Yeah. Over three generations, they make what they call a righteous friendship with mammon. <laughs> <laughs> That's their phrase. And one of the points of their Puritan theology is that the world is a storehouse of what they call vendable wonders, which is to be exploited to fullest possible extent. Also conquest. Mm -hmm. The uh, massacre of the Indians is doing due diligence for setting up of a profitable real estate deal. But, but, but this was part of their theology. And again, the Constitution in Philadelphia, I mean, in 1787, it's to set up a safe space for wealth and the wealthy. It's not like Magna Carta. It's not a sharing of a bountiful wilderness. It's government of prosperous merchants in the north and slaveholding planters in the south, mm -hmm. setting up a government by men of property, a government hospitable to the acquisition of more property. Yeah. The and democratic element is in the Bill of Rights. Which was gutted during this, yeah. during this very yeah. sad time in a way that was, it felt very fast at the time, but by comparison with Trump, it, it was actually pretty slow. But such is the passage of time. And in, in this piece that ran the month after we invaded Iraq, and it, it's called Cause for Dissent, 10 Questions for the Bush Regime. Obviously, you're a student of history, and you quote key figures from the Truman administration, such as Dean Acheson, who was yeah. Truman's Secretary of State, who posited that all American foreign policy was nonpartisan, and if we can get the suckers to believe that, we'll never have anything to worry about. Right. Um, 
to what extent do you see a parallel between what the Bush administration did with things related to terrorism and 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 creating the, like the color-coded risk scale and uh, the civil defense, you know, these different programs that showed people they should be afraid, but not totally paralyzed. So they could still go to work and be American and right. do their do their diligence. Yes, uh, do their shopping. Yes. <laughs> In other words, you know, it's the consumer society. I mean, the, the uh, terror alerts are to instill the uh, habit of obedience you know an early form of of lockdown yeah i mean the extent of of the surveillance that comes out of the patriot act i mean it's much more draconian than than uh, the british crown in in the 18th century i mean Al Gore actually says in 2001 that we're living in a police state. He says that in so many words. It's true. Yeah. But, of course, this is all being done for our own good. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just the way that, I mean, they've now got the idea of using some form of cryptocurrency uh, subject to a social score that the government will be able to decide what you can spend and what you can you you won't have control of your own money hmm. the move in that direction has been going on a long time i mean it actually comes out of the 60s the 60s frightens the american ruling class to such a degree that the uh, shutting down of of of, of free speech is already well underway in the 70s. Mm. Freedom is, is a very, uh, is a combustible element. Justice Louis Brandeis, 1941, talking to Roosevelt about the New Deal, says, we can have democracy or we can have concentrated wealth in the hands of the few, but we can't have both. He's wrong. We can't not have both. The plutocracy and democracy are permanent members of the human condition. Neither of them can be deplatformed or canceled. And it is the separation of their powers, the selflessness of democracy, a check on the selfishness of plutocracy, that is the American experiment with a combustible element of freedom. People in power are always afraid of freedom, terrified of it. I mean, the American ruling class today are paralyzed with, with, with their fear of the American people. And, and the, this brings out, of course, responses. I mean, the more frightened you are, the more violent and, and, and vicious your attempt to do away with your fear. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that's why we've got heavily armed police all over the country, right? And the, the, uh, the Americans, we don't have a tragic sense of life, and therefore we can't get over our fear of death. In my view, that's the great challenge.
look what's going on now. I mean, no day goes by without somewhere in the media somebody announcing the end of the world. Climate change, crime, it just gets wall to wall, streaming through the firmament of the media, you know, on posted on all the walls. I mean, the uh, dying animals, migration, rising seas, political collapse, autocracy on the rise, birth rate going down. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> one of the consequences of the epidemic was to give people time and space to think about other meanings in life than the ones offered by money. And, and there are hints of that in all different kinds of ways. Less people going back to work, more people going back to work for lesser money in return for more time to themselves, learning to uh, not gorge themselves on, on, on the uh, food and drink and, and, and so, so on. I mean, lived democracy instead of rhetorical mm -hmm. democracy. The democracy known to Whitman, you know, when Whitman's serving as a nurse in Civil War, there's a wonderful passage somewhere, I think it's in Drum Taps, where he's talking, he says, he's sitting next to these kids that are horribly wounded in, in Civil War hospitals, which were not hygienic. Mm -hmm. And he holds their hands and, and talks to them. And, and the, uh, he, you know, he brings them an apple or he brings them a pencil to, and a piece of paper to write, write home to their mother, brother, wife. And, and then he sometimes gives them money, but the money isn't important to them. That spirit is still alive, I think. Mm. If you kind of look at, a, at at American history, you can sort of see the the theme between democracy and plutocracy weaving its way throughout the whole of the American experience. And sometimes one of the one of the other is in the ascendance. You know, it's like music. I mean, it, it's the minor and major key, and they switch places. You know, since the '70s, the plutocracy has been the dominant theme, and here there are indications of uh, some kind of resurrection of the uh, democratic music. Well, I wanted to read a little bit of one of the essays, The Cause for Dissent, The Ending. Yeah. So I'm just quoting you, which is great. You have to listen to me read read what you wrote to you. Uh, so defined as a ceaseless process of change, democracy assumes the pain of contradiction and new discovery, not only as the normal, but also as the necessary condition of existence. As has been said, a hard act to perform, and one that failed and was abandoned in nearly every country in Europe in the generation between the First and Second World Wars. In place of truthful and therefore possibly unpleasant argument, the Bush administration offers warm and welcome lies, advising us to lay aside the tool of thought and rest safely on the pillows of glorious 
and world-encircling empire, we accept the invitation at our peril. So, fast forward. We did accept the invitation, but now we're at a point where we reject it. There are very few people who are willing to defend the Iraq war now. And even the, the, there are some people who write it off as like the post 9-11 crazies or whatever. But where does American democracy stand now? And why can't we learn from our mistakes? Because this seems like the failure of the Iraq war seems like such a perfect example of why you should be extremely critical of all of these things. Well, that's an interesting question. Where democracy stands now is with what I've just said a little while ago, but with people coming out of the epidemic and understanding that there were more things in life than a new car and more money, mm -hmm. right? And you've seen that. But I would actually go to the point where there was a 1976 movie that was released on the 200th anniversary of Declaration of Independence Network. Mm, yes. And Howard Beale, I believe his name is, stands up at some point and says, I won't take it anymore. Open the windows. I won't take it anymore. And what was it that he was telling them not to take? What was the being locked down? And I think democracy asserting itself along those lines was part of the response to the George Floyd death. Overnight, that goes viral, and there are people standing around in the streets saying they won't take it anymore all over the country, I think in 2,000 towns and cities. Mm -hmm. And not all of it is Black Lives Matter. I think it's the democratic way of being so that I think that the protest, January 6th protest in the Capitol, is the democracy. And that the wishing to convicted of treason is the plutocracy. In other words, I think that uh, Nancy Pelosi and the, uh, the, the woman from Wyoming, Ch Cheney, God, I mean, I mean, the more you know about her father, <laughs> yeah. he's a true criminal. Uh, and and the, uh, is, is the plutocratic reaction to the, the democratic cry for freedom. Democracy isn't a form of government. Democracy is, yeah, Rousseau says that. I mean, he, he says that in the social contract. He says there, democracy is so short-lived, it can be said not to exist as a form of government. It, it, it's a feeling, it, it's a way, it's emotion. It, it's it's uh, other than the rational clock-like universe of the Enlightenment. It, it, it's, it's romantic, it, it's Beethoven, and it doesn't last long, and it can't, because it's hard to hold it together. Again, this is the lesson that you, you see from the French Revolution. You have the emotions overwhelming the, the uh, Bastille, but then the inability of, of the emotions to come together into anything other than Robespierre's reign of virtue, which just is simply a, a more vicious form of, of uh, the plutocracy. The, the, 
And, and then, of course, it's also the question of the machine. There's the great passage in, in Henry Adams. Henry Adams is looking at the dynamo at the Paris exhibition of 1900. And he's so in awe of the, the dynamo, the power of it, relentless, and, and that his instinct is to worship. The big theme of modernism is, is the, the war of man against machine. And the plutocracy, of course, is on the side of the machine, mm-hmm. is the machine. And that, that, again, is marked. And the irony is that here in 1900, you have Adams, American conservative, grandson of one president, great-grandson of another, agreeing with Marx on that point. Well, I wanted to speak a bit about this piece from November 2006 that you wrote, which is called Going by the Book. Um, And in it, you quote some parts of this Council on Foreign Relations presentation that happened uh, around the time of the fifth anniversary of 9-11. Yeah. At this point, it's very clear that the war is a disaster. Yeah. It's clear that nobody is actually being threatened by terrorists domestically. Right. right. Um, and you quote these these very authoritative, very scary men, and it's completely, it's so funny. Someone asks them about the ports, and the presenter says, uh, the really dangerous threats are the hypotheticals, the ones we don't expect and can't predict. So it's like, why, well, why are you here? Why are we listening to you talk? Yeah, right. So, I mean, and then you sort of go on to connect how they're blaming private companies for failing to spend enough money on anti-terrorism. And this is the government, right? The yeah. government doesn't believe in itself. To what extent do you feel like your reaction to the Iraq war, the war on terror, was shaped by the fact that you were in New York and you had a front seat to some of the most just absurd displays of patriotism, of, yeah. of statecraft, of all of these different things. Yeah. When you really get into a dangerous situation, you know, catastrophe, it's the democracy that shows up and not the plutocracy. In other words, the government response to 9-11 was very weak, slow, and, and uh, fearful, whereas you have volunteers coming from all over the goddamn country, and they're there as soon as they can. And it's the people caring for each other. That is democracy. That's, the, that's what Tom Paine says. The government is never going to goddamn... I mean, the government doesn't, isn't interested in protecting the American people. The government is interested in protecting American pro- property. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, yeah, they, no. they, they, uh, Tocqueville sees that, whatever that is, 1830, 31. He's, he sees it as, as the gift for association. Here are people living in small communities, even in small towns, throughout the Middle West, and they help one another. There's no central government. There's no national currency. They do what they do like God. I mean, I mean, it, they help. They're not 
thinking of self-promotion. They're not thinking of a tax angle, because if they don't do it, nobody else will. It's a beautiful passage in Tocqueville, actually. But again, it's like the passage in Whitman. It's also like numbers of passages in in Lincoln. But, But the thing is, you have to understand it democracy as emotion, intuition, as discovery. I mean, Einstein talks about that, too. And it has to do with language. A great passage in Toni Morrison's Stockholm speech where she says that uh, we die, and that might be the end of life. But when we do language, we live, and that is the meaning of life. That's not exact quote, but it's close. Mm. But it's like Shakespeare. I mean, um, you know, capture the love in words. Mm. But you understand, I mean, we, the plutocracy is hoping that it can get all those work done. Freedom is work. And, and the, uh, but they're hoping it can be done by AI. I don't think that works because... That's not consciousness. The the, um, I mean, Alexa can read the books, but she doesn't know what the words mean. Right. So much of consciousness yeah. are these contradictions. Yeah. They these the yeah. higher functions of yeah our right. being are, yeah. are predicated on things computers can't do because yeah. they're they they have rules to follow. Yeah. Um, and speaking of rules, it's difficult not to draw parallels between Saddam Hussein, former U.S. ally, and Vladimir Putin, former U.S. ally. Yeah. You know, America seems to have given up on the Middle East, and now, once again, we're focused on China and Russia. Right. So do you think the the naivete, that innocence we were talking about at the start, does that have to do with this turn toward this Cold War thinking, or is it something else? I, I don't know. I think they're trapped in Cold War thinking. That's that's my... I mean, somebody once said about the French Bourbon dynasty that they never forgot anything and they never learned anything. <laughs> right? And the, uh, I think Biden's mindset is somewhere back in 1950. First of all, I think it's... To imagine that Putin intends some onslaught into Europe to reestablish the make-believe Russian Empire, it's just, that makes no sense. I mean, we brought on the the Cold War out of our own paranoia. I mean, the the Russians in 1945-46, half of the, were, were in absolutely no position to overrun Europe. I mean, I mean, no. they lost something like 15 million casualties. Most of their transport was horse-drawn. We make up this notion of a Russian horde empire overwhelming Europe. I mean, I mean that's our paranoia. I mean, the the I think, and and I think the same thing now. I mean, one thing Putin has shown to be true with his attack on Ukraine is that his his army is in no shape to take over much of anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> but Biden wants to think so. Or certainly our defense contractors want to think so because they, they're the ones who profit. 
We don't know where the money is gone. We've, give, we've given them $30 billion. But we do know that a major part of it will go into the American defense industry. Mm. Again, I mean, that's a sterile inv investment. I mean, that's Eisenhower's wonderful speech about the military-industrial complex, where to invest money in weapons is, is uh, it's sterile. It doesn't produce anything. I mean, the meaning of money depends on the uses to which it is put. And if you put it to the use of funding the building of bridges and canals and, and uh, infrastructure and people's lives, it's a, a good thing. When you worship it and uh, use it to make weapons or, you know, buy temples to mammon, you know, $40 million apartments and so forth and so on. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's useless. Well, I wanted to ask one last thing, which is that revisiting these pieces they're quite funny. And even though it's become maybe a little attractive to be, to quote Marx, let's say, it's still not the mainstream. But to do it in 2003, in the early 2000s, it was vaguely heretical, right? That you would, you would take this stance and so much, every part of culture, even, even people, everyday people, they, they wanted this war in Iraq. They, they believed that we would be doing the right thing. Yeah. What about your background, your education has allowed, like, allowed you to see through all of this, to have such a very clear, uh, sardonic sometimes point of view about what the plutocracy is yeah. doing. Well, I begin to notice it at a fairly young age, right? I mean, I'm brought up put it this way, in 1989, I published a book called Money and Class in America, and it was attacked by David Brooks, then a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, who said that nobody in his right mind could attack money, and the only reason that I was doing it was to make money. Um, <laughs> Pretty clever. <laughs> and, and the... Uh, but I wasn't. What I was trying to do was to uh, rid myself of the habit of mind that judges a man's excellence by his net worth. That phrase first appears in Upton Sinclair, the novelist and, and, and poet, also ran for governor of California in the 30s on a socialist ticket. Pecuniary decency. It's also the ideas that appear in Veblen's theory of the leisure class. So I, I grew up in a privileged neighborhood in, in San Francisco, 1930, born in 1935, Pacific Heights. I'm the grandson and son and great-grandson in a family that owns oil companies and shipping companies. And the, um, my parents never speak about money. It was blasphemy. But I was given to understand that, you know, by the age of four, that um, any, any man worth significant amount of money deserved the respect of the statue of George Washington, that uh, money was the elephant always in the room that ruled the world, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was the same lesson taught at prep school in Hotchkiss in Connecticut and also at Yale in, in the 50s that 
the headmaster or, or the president of the university giving the speech telling you that you were the favorite few and you are those to whom much has been given, much is to be expected. Mm. But you are, by definition, by birth, and that money corrupts poor people, but ennobles rich people. <laughs> I already knew something was wrong, right? Mm. And, and the, uh, I didn't buy into that. Uh, it, it, in fact, it was it's a variation of the the old Puritan theology of covenant of capitalism. But then I began to, you know, as a newspaper reporter in both San Francisco and, and New York in the 50s, then again in the 60s, I began to meet the elephant mm. and <laughs> began to see through the, 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 uh, the idea that um, money could do no wrong. What I was trying to do with money and class in America was trying to rid myself of the illusions which you are presented with if you're born into what in America goes by the name of ruling class. In most cases, there's nobody home. Aristotle says that all government, no matter what you call it, is... is uh, of the few by the many. So all government is oligarchy. And it can start out as uh, as did the American oligarchy. Coming out of the Constitution was the idea that it was, Madison says so, says that the uh, government should be run by the people who are with the most wisdom to discern and the most virtue to pursue the common good of the society. And by that, they meant men like themselves. Madison says so. Adams says so. Jefferson says so in different words. And by we the people, they mean those of us with the wisdom to discern and the virtue to pursue. I mean, the poor, the black women don't have a hand in it. They're not part of the we the people in the Constitution. And this is a lesson I'm still being taught at prep school and college in, 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 in the 50s. And the thing is that, yes, sometimes, you know, you can start out with, with uh, an oligarchy that, that uh, meets the specifications of virtue. Many of the, in the original governments of the United States, men did. I mean, Adams, Jefferson, I mean, these are people of, they're learned, and they have a genuine interest in, in, the, in the good of the society, and they're prepared to work at it. But sooner or later, even the best of oligarchies rot in the sun. They return to the great truth that their first care becomes the caring for themselves. And Aristotle says they become what he calls government of prosperous fools. Men so lost in the dream of riches as to believe that there is nothing money cannot buy. And that is the plutocracy that develops in the United States and the one which we are now privileged to see comfortably settled in Washington. That is the swamp.
You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org slash save to subscribe for only 1697.